And as you are seated, turn with me to Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-three. Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-three. We'll be reading verses one through seventeen. And considering a very important doctrine for the Christian life, the doctrine of repentance. Second Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 17. Give attention to God's holy word. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate, and it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. And then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have called us into your presence through the grace of the gospel and that you have made us many precious promises that by these we may escape the world which has grown corrupt through lust. We pray now, O Lord, that you would fulfill that great promise that Christ, as one of the rewards of his cross, would come down by the Spirit and preach your name to us in the midst of us, his brothers. And we ask you to do this, that we may escape the world. And we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Does God govern the world? Every man of whatever Christian confession he is will have to confess that God does indeed govern the world. God, by definition, must govern the world because He is God Almighty. And every Christian confesses this basic fact. But the next question, the more important question, is how does God govern the world and what 
is he seeking when he governs the world? What is the framework for how God rules, and what is his goal in exercising his government over the world? This is where men will differ. This is where different schools of Christian thought will give you different answers. But it is the more important question. Because you see, the way that you answer that second question, how does God govern the world and what is he seeking when he governs the world, the way that you answer that question will determine how you read the story of mankind broadly and how you read your own personal story. You see, the answer to that question determines what we look for in world history, but more importantly, it determines what we look for in our own lives. Thankfully, God has told us how he governs the world. He has not left us to figure it out on our own. He has told us explicitly how he governs the world and what he is looking for in his government of the world, what his goals are. In the story of Manasseh, we see one episode in the broad series of God's government of the world. And in the story of Manasseh, we find that God governs the world according to his covenant. He governs the world according to the blessings and the cursings of his covenant And through the blessings and the cursings of the covenant, he is seeking true repentance. God governs the world through the blessings and cursings of his covenant. And through those two things, his goal is to bring sinners to a true repentance. Specifically, what we're going to see in this passage is that God disciplines Manasseh according to the covenant with Israel, and through this discipline, brings him to a true repentance. There's three things in this passage that we're going to notice. First, a truly sinful king, verses 1 through 9. Secondly, a truly gracious governor, verses 10 through 13. And then finally, a truly repentant saint in verses 14 through 17. A truly sinful king, verses 1 through 9. A truly gracious governor in verses 10 through 13. And a truly repentant saint in verses 14 through 17. And so we begin by looking at verses 1 through 9, a truly sinful king. You may be aware that Manasseh is regarded as the most wicked king of all the kings that reigned over Judah. Manasseh is guilty. We're going to see the sins that he's guilty of. He is guilty of such heinous sins that in the book of the Kings, it's the sins of Manasseh that are the final straw that leads Israel into exile. The sins of this king. In the book of Kings, Manasseh's repentance is not recorded because the purpose of the book of Kings is meant to show the wickedness of Israel. Here in 2 Chronicles, there's a different purpose for this history. And the purpose of 2 Chronicles is to encourage the exiles who have returned under Ezra and Nehemiah. 2 Chronicles is probably put together by Ezra. The purpose of 2 Chronicles is to encourage the returned exiles that even though you sinned, even though God disciplined you, God is merciful. Look at what he did with Manasseh, the most wicked king in all of Judah's history. And so we begin in verse 1, and we're told that he takes the kingship. He takes the headship of God's house. Look at what it says. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. We're told right off the bat that we have a sinful head of the house of Israel. He's reigning, and he's a sinner. Something to notice in these first nine verses, something first off to point out, notice in verse 4 and in verse 7, the house of the Lord is repeated twice. 
The, the idea of the house in the Old Testament refers to two things. The house refers not only to the building that the uh, owner would occupy, and so in one sense, the house is the temple of Jerusalem. That's the house of the Lord. But the other way that the word house is used in the Old Testament is to refer to the household, to the family of the owner of the house. You remember the covenant made with David. David said, I want to build a house for the Lord, a temple. The Lord comes to David and says, you can't do that, but I'm going to build you a house, a household, a generation of offspring. So this use of the word for building and family is very common in the Old Testament. We find it here. Uh, we find it here used in that same way. If you want to look this up later on your ta- own time, Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22, Paul uses this idea to speak about the church as the household of God as well as the dwelling place of God. The two ideas are brought together by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. And you'll notice that Manasseh sins against God's house in both senses. Verses 4 through 5, he sins against the house of God, meaning against God directly and against God's worship. We might call this sins of the first table. Now, I hope you're familiar with the distinction. We recognize, as the confession teaches us and as the scriptures bear it out, the Ten Commandments are divided into two tables. The first four commandments deal with our duty towards God. The last six deal with our duty towards man. Well, Manasseh sins against the first table in verses 3 through 4. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah had torn down. He raised up altars to the Baals. He's worshiping false gods. He made wooden images. He worshiped all the host of heaven. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. In all of these ways, Manasseh sins against all of the first four commandments. He worships false gods. He worships the one true God in a way that he invented, not according to the way God appointed. And we're going to see in verse 4, he blasphemes the name of God with this worship. Notice what the end of verse 4 says. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. By Manasseh's sinful actions, he's not only worshiping false gods, he is blaspheming the one true and living God. Not only does he sin against the first table of the law, against God's house directly, he sins against God's house broadly, meaning against the people. Verses 5 through 8 describe this. We might call these sins against the second table of the law. Notice in verse 5, notice in verse 4 how the, the author quotes a promise of God, and then he moves on in verse 5. This is a freebie for you. As you're reading the Scriptures, you need to notice these small details. This is how the author is breaking up his material. This is how he's organizing it. Up until verse 4, he quotes, and then he moves on. You're going to see at the end of this section, verse 8, he quotes again. That marks off these two sections in the narrative. So he sins against God's house, meaning against God's people. Verse 5, it says he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Now, this is a minor detail, but it's a significant detail. If you remember, the, the temple complex in Jerusalem, you had at the center was the Holy of Holies. And then just outside of that was the holy place where the, where the table and the lampstand stood. That structure, holy place, holy of holies, was the temple proper. Outside of that building, there were courtyards where the basins of water and the altars would be erected, where the sacrifices were offered. The courtyard of the Lord's house was meant to be the place where Israel and the nations could gather into God's presence. You see, you as a regular Israelite could not go into the holy place, but you could go into the courtyard. You could approach God's presence by entering into his courts and offering up your prayers to him. 
This is the reason the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels goes into the temple complex and overturns the temples of the money changers and says, you have made the house of my God, which is a house of prayer for all nations, a den of thieves. These are the courts of the Lord. Manasseh sins against the people by building altars in the courts of the Lord. But he goes further. He commits murder. He causes his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying. He used witchcraft. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. Now, verse 6, when it talks about mediums and spiritists and wizards, it may sound like this is, again, a sin against the first table. But remember, using these powers of demons is not only sinful against God, it's also sinful against the people. You remember the story of the Exodus. Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And then Moses begins to show him signs. He turns his staff into a snake. He causes blood to, uh, he causes uh, water to be transformed into blood. And then Pharaoh looks at his magicians, same word, looks at his magicians and says, uh, what's going on here? Then the magicians perform the same miracle. They turn their staffs into snakes. The result of that is because Pharaoh saw the power of the magicians, his heart was hardened. His heart was turned away from following the Lord because he was paying attention to the power of demons. So for Manasseh to use the power of demons in all these different ways, he's corrupting the people's hearts to not follow the Lord. Again, he is sinning against the people. He sets up a carved image in the house of God. I notice the passage that the author quotes. Verse 7. He set the idol in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes, I will put my name, and I will not remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers. Notice that the author now expands the promise. It's not merely that God will dwell in Jerusalem, but as God dwells in Jerusalem, he will protect the people in the promised land through his religious worship. And so Manasseh sins against God's house. He sins against the first table of the law. He sins against the second table of the law. And in every sense, Manasseh is truly a sinful king. But not only did he sin for himself, not only was Manasseh personally a sinful man, his sins are aggravated They are exacerbated. They are intensified. They are increased because of his position in the nation. Look at verse 9. So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. The larger catechism talks to us about different degrees of sinfulness. And it says that not all sins are equally heinous in the sight of God. Some sins admit of certain aggravations. And one of those aggravations is is if you are in a position of authority over others, your sinfulness and your example is worse than if you were a private person. Manasseh is the king of Judah. Not only is he the king of Judah, he's a son of David. He is in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his sins, which are bad enough on their own, he seduces the whole nation to commit the abominations of the Canaanites that Israel had driven out. Truly a sinful king. A couple of observations. First, religious sins are the worst sins. Sins against the first table are the worst sins. One, because they detract from God's honor. Notice how the author quotes these promises. Both cases, I will put my name there, I will put my name there and protect the people. Manasseh's sins detract from God's honor. He worships false gods. He worships the true God falsely. He even dabbles 
with the power of demons. Religious sins are the worst sins. They not only detract from God's honor, they also flaunt and disregard gospel promises. Notice what he says in verse 4. Remember what the author says in verse 4. Of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. This is one of the benefits of the gospel, brothers and sisters. That God gives you his name. In the Old Testament economy, the name was in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the midst of the nation. And to have God's name near you meant that you became part of his family. He renames you as one of his own. You are the people of Jehovah because his name is in your midst. In the Old Testament economy, it was a national blessing, so to speak. In the New Testament, that name becomes personal. God gives you that name individually. Look with me at a couple of passages. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Ephesians 3, verse 14. Paul is praying, as it were, as as a high priest in the midst of the temple of God. He's just finished describing how the church is the new temple of God. And then in verse 14, he says, For this reason, because Christ has built this house and Christ has filled this house with his glory, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you that what Paul is talking about here, this gospel reality, is what we call the doctrine of adoption. You see, when you adopt somebody into your family, they are no longer called Smith. They are called Johnny, whatever your family name is. They are renamed. They become part of your house. Whatever they were in their past is done away by the giving of a new name, as it were. And likewise for sinners, when we have grown up in our sins and committed heinous acts against God, our name is covered with shame. Our name is worthy to be forgotten. Our name is worth less than the dust of the earth. But God in his mercy through Christ adopts you and gives you a new name. Not only when you believe in Christ, but also in heaven, in glory, forever. Turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. John is writing to the churches to encourage them to remain faithful. And he encourages them with this gospel promise. Revelation 3, verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. You see, brothers and sisters, God has a new name for you. Whatever your name might be associated with in your past, God is going to give you a new name. And notice how this new name is connected to God's Worship. I will make him a pillar in the house of my God and give him the name of my God. I will crown him with the grace of the name of heaven. And so religious sins are the worst kind of sins, not only because they detract from God's honor, but they also flaunt, they disregard gospel promises. And sadly, brothers and sisters, in many cases, the sins of our day, the sins of the Reformed Church, and the sins of the American Church are religious sins. These are most of the sins that we are guilty of as Christians in this country. Now, we're not, I don't think, necessarily guilty of the sins of worshiping the Baals, worshiping false gods. I think our sins are more like the sins of Haggai chapter 1. Turn to Haggai chapter 1. 
Haggai is right before Zechariah, right after Zephaniah. Haggai chapter 1. Now you must remember that Haggai is a prophet of the returned exiles. Haggai is a prophet of the generation that would have received Second Chronicles. These are all happening at the same time. And Haggai, as he begins his prophecy, you'll notice in these minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, when they speak to the people, they don't speak about false gods. They speak about worshiping the true God falsely. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This my people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came to, uh, by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Consider 2022 in America. Consider what's happening right now under God's government. You have sown much, but bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink and are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, why would God govern our generation in the way that he's governing it? Why is God, as it were, blowing all the prosperity of the victor of World War II away right before our eyes? Why is he blowing all of that away? Is it because of homosexuality? No. Is it because of abortion? No. Is it because of socialism? No. Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit for I called for a drought on the land and the mountains on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. Brothers and sisters, I cannot emphasize this enough with you today. If you want prosperity, worship God. If you want peace, worship the Lord. If you would see our country revived, build up God's house. Build up his temple. Repent of your religious sins. Repent of worshiping the true God with a half heart. See, that's really what's going on here. They're half-hearted in their service to God. They're not worshiping Baals. They're not Muslims. They're not Buddhists. They're not Mormons. But they're half-heartedly Christians. I fear these are the sins of our day. And these are the sins for which God is striking us, just as he struck Manasseh. And so we've seen a truly sinful king. But thanks be to God, he is a truly gracious governor. Returning to Second Chronicles 33, verses 10 through 13. Notice the graciousness of God first. He reissues his word. He preaches the gospel again to Manasseh. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 8 through 15 and verses 21 through 26. For the sake of time, I won't go there with you. But that passage gives us a picture of what this would have been like. Jeremiah describes the Lord's pleadings with his people, and he says, Daily rising up early, I sent my prophets to you, pleading with you 
to call upon me and to return to me. Every day he sent his prophets to the people. Every day they sent the gospel saying, Jehovah is long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, ready to pardon. Be reconciled to God. But the people would not listen. And so because they rejected the word of the governor, the governor applies his discipline in verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. 2 Samuel 7.14, the covenant made with David gives us the parameters of that covenant. You see, Manasseh is a son of David. He is a king of Judah. And he's under the the, the blessings and the cursings of the covenant made with David. And when that covenant is made with David, the Lord tells David this, verse 14, 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. You know, we read in the book of Proverbs that as parents, we are to discipline our children with the rod, if need be. Well, God Almighty is a father. He is a parent to his people. And he also has a rod that he disciplines them with. He tells us right here, it's the rod of men. It's the rod of other nations. And we see this fulfilled exactly in Manasseh's life. He sinned against God. God pled with him through the gospel. He rejected it. And so God said, here come the Assyrians. I'm going to discipline you. I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that this is an expression of God's graciousness to you. It is his fatherly favor that causes him to discipline you. We're going to see later on in Manasseh's life, but I want you to recognize in your own life that when God extends his rod upon your life, it is not for destruction. It is for reformation. When God's fatherly care is expressed by disciplining his people, he does it for the sake of their correction. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us this, doesn't it? It says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. For as many as the Lord our God loves, He rebukes and chastens. The love of God the Father is expressed in His gracious discipline and rebuking of you. That's the grace of our governor. That He loves us and corrects us. Now there's many misunderstandings about this one simple truth, isn't there, brothers and sisters? You see, we want to think that the grace of God means that I will never suffer. That the grace of God means I will never be ashamed of my ways. That the grace of God means that he will never strike me. But you see, the grace of God is that because your sin is sinful, because your sin will destroy you, And because God is so holy, he cannot abide the sins of his people. Because of those things, his grace is to correct you. His grace is to apply his discipline to you. His grace is to send this discipline. And by the grace of the Spirit, and even in the heart, of a Manasseh, the governor's goal is accomplished. Look at what he says, 2 Chronicles 33, verses 12 through 13. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God. Can you believe this? Manasseh the worst king of Judah's history, worshiping the Baals, murdering his own sons in false worship, seducing the nation to commit iniquity worse than the Canaanites, 
And God pleads with him. God disciplines him. His heart is humbled. And he calls upon the Lord, his God. Not someone else's God. He is the Lord, my God. This is the work of faith in his heart. Brothers and sisters, no matter how much you have sinned, there is no sin that you cannot repent of. There is no sin that God will condemn you for if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and can say with Manasseh, even in a Babylonian dungeon, even in the chains of affliction, even in the sorrow and shame of whatever God is doing in your life, if you can say, the Lord is my God, he will abundantly forgive and pardon. He will abundantly forgive those that truly repent. And we see that Manasseh truly repents. He humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him. And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. True repentance produces three fruits. There are three things that true repentance does in the heart, and we see all three of them here in Manasseh. The first is a spiritual zeal, a spiritual earnestness in the things of God. This is expressed in Manasseh's prayer. This is what we often think about when we talk about repentance. We might call this repentance proper. The spiritual change of heart and the change of disposition when God afflicts us and when he humbles us and we repent and confess. We have a renewed uh, energy, a renewed desire, a renewed fire for the things of God. It's expressed in prayer and it results in a true experiential I'll say that one again. That's a 50-cent word. A true experiential knowledge of God. Through the grace of repentance, we begin to experience in our own souls and our own consciences that I am indeed a sinner, but God is gracious. We say with John Newton, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And we begin to taste that for ourselves through his acts in our lives. You'll notice also, this is another freebie for you, the whole pattern of this episode that we're reading is the same pattern as the book of Exodus. You see, that the people are in bondage in Egypt, they cry out to the Lord, he has mercy on them, and the end result of the Exodus narrative is that the people know that the Lord is God. That the people know he is the, the Savior. He is the one true and living God. Manasseh comes to that knowledge personally, individually, through repentance. And so it results in a spiritual zeal. This is what the Greek word in the New Testament means. Repentance in the Greek is metanoia. It means a change of mind, a, a change of understanding. This change of mind is not simply more information, but it's a change from sinful rebellion to sanctified submission. That is repentance, spiritually. But not only does repentance produce this spiritual change, it also produces a second fruit. True repentance produces good works. True repentance produces good works, especially that benefit our neighbor. Titus chapter 3, verse 8, Paul tells Titus, remind the people that have believed in God to maintain good works. Good works are those things that benefit men. Titus 3, 8. And we see here in the life of Manasseh, he does the same thing. Verse 14, he earlier had sinned against the second table. He'd sinned against the people. Now in verse 14, he repents and begins defending the people. He begins benefiting the people. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David. He raised it to a great height. And then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. 
You see, he's now protecting and defending the people. According to his office as king, he is defending and doing his job to protect the people. Before, he was corrupting them with demonic wizards. Now, he's defending them with the walls of Judah and the military captains in all the cities of Judah. He has repented from his sins. As I mentioned, he is benefiting the people according to his place in that society. This is an expression of the fifth commandment. He's in a position of superiority. He's the king of the nation. And as superior, he has a duty to defend and protect the people. And so he is benefiting them according to his station. The fifth commandment applies to all of us in all of our relationships. Whatever position you are in, you owe certain duties to those that are underneath you. You owe certain duties to those that are above you. We do not all owe the same duties to every single person in this room. I hope you'll understand it when I say that I owe more to my wife and mother than I do to your wife and your mother. This is the fifth commandment. This is how we are related one to another. And so Manasseh repents and begins doing his duty according to his position. So true repentance produces spiritual zeal, produces good works that benefit our neighbor, and it produces true worship according to God's word. You see this in verses 15 and 16. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's house and all the altars that he built. He cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. In Psalm 51, verses 14 through 19, David's great repentance psalm, as he's confessing his sins, He's asking the Lord to renew in him a right spirit, return that spiritual zeal to me. And then he says, I will teach sinners in your way. He wants to benefit his neighbor. But then he ends the psalm by saying, I will worship you according to your word with a contrite heart and the sacrifices upon the altar. You see how repentance produces all three things. We see that in Manasseh. He removes false worship in verse 15. Notice again, house is repeated twice in verse 15. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars he built in the mount of the house of the Lord. He takes away false worship and he restores true worship in verse 16. He also repaired the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it. Public worship is the primary response that we owe God when we repent. The offerings that he offers here is very interesting. He says that Manasseh offered peace offerings and thank offerings. You know what these, these two offerings symbolized? These symbolized reconciliation. These symbolized a restored relationship. You see, the peace offering was offered, and it, in, in Leviticus it says... You are to cook this or you're to burn it like a meal. Instead of burning the goat completely up, you would roast the goat like a barbecue. And after the goat was roasted, the priest and the worshiper would partake. They would have a meal in the Lord's house symbolizing reconciliation. The thank offering also is offered up to express our gratitude to God for restoring us. But this is all happening in public worship. John, in chapter 4 of his gospel, says the same thing. When Christ is speaking to the woman at the well, Christ tells us that in the gospel preaching, in the blessing of the covenant, God is seeking truly penitent sinners to worship him. Look at what Christ says in John chapter 4. Verse 23, uh, sorry, 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation 
the blessing of the covenant, is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. This is what the Father wants, true worship. Finally, in 2 Chronicles 33, Manasseh is completely repentant. He not only worships God, but he commands the people to worship God as well. This, again, is part of the fifth commandment. He is the king. It's his job to lead the people in the true religion, and so he commands them, worship the Lord your God. I like what John Piper said. John Piper once said, Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. And so Manasseh commands his people. He evangelizes them, as it were. Be reconciled to God and worship and serve him alone. Again, it's according to his station in which he stands. And this is very important for us, I think, today when we want to repent of our own sins. It it can be overwhelming when you look at the world around you and all of the things that need to be done, all of the ways that God's worship is blasphemed, all of the ways that God's commandments are violated every day all over the place. God only holds you responsible for the position he has put you in. God only holds you responsible for the sphere of responsibility that you have been given. He doesn't hold you responsible for the White House. He holds you responsible for your house. He doesn't hold you responsible for your neighbor's kids. He holds you responsible for your kids. He doesn't hold you responsible for the senators in Richmond. He holds you responsible for the men you allow in your house. Do you want to see revival in this country? Don't look to the White House. As Psalm 118 says, it is vain to trust in princes. Do your duty in the station that God has placed you in. Where are you? Do you have children, friends, siblings, parents, employees, a wife, a husband? See to it that they are reconciled to God and don't worry about all the others. You may know the famous anecdote from Charles Spurgeon. There was a young man who came to Spurgeon's office said, Mr. Spurgeon, I want to be a preacher. I want to preach the gospel like you do. And Mr. Spurgeon said to that young man, he says, so what do you do now? The young man said, well, I'm a, I'm a fireman. I work at the firehouse. He said, okay, convert the firemaster and then come back to me. Make him a Christian and then we'll talk. You see, he's applying this same idea. Be responsible where you are. And do your duty where God has placed you. This is, the reason I'm spending time on this is because this is one of the very practical, helpful, and encouraging ways that we can repent. It's a very tangible step that you can take in repentance. Instead of trying to worry about all of the things you've done wrong in your life, repent, thank God, and do your duty right where you are. Just like Manasseh does. Well, the people partly obey their king. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. They partly obey. They're not worshiping Baal, but they're still worshiping God in the wrong way. Manasseh has done his part. He's done everything that's required of him. He's not responsible for the result. That's God's choice. Ultimately, the reason that Manasseh fails in this reformation is for the greater glory of Christ. You see, the true Son of David, Christ alone through His death on the cross and the power of His Spirit, can alone bring sinners to repentance and establish the true worship of God. Only that Son of David can do this. Manasseh does not have that power. Like we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, this is Christ's work to establish God's worship through the blessings and the cursings of the covenant. As I said, repentance is a very important doctrine in the Christian life. Repentance is so important that our confession of faith says that repentance unto life 
is an evangelical grace to be preached by every minister of the gospel along with faith in Christ. You see, none of us can be saved unless we repent. When Christ came preaching the kingdom, when John the Baptist came preaching, they said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I want to leave you with this idea. Repentance is an evangelical grace. That means it is only by the grace of the gospel that you can repent. And because God has given you the gospel, he has favored you with his word, with the blessing of the covenant, you need to repent. Repentance is the only appropriate response to the grace of God in the covenant of God. John the Baptist has a stern warning for us in his ministry. You remember that in Matthew chapter 3, as John the Baptist is preaching, all the people are coming, and they're being baptized by John, confessing their sins. And then the scribes and the Pharisees show up. And John the Baptist says, you brood of vipers, who warned you from the wrath to come? Bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful. We do not fall into the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. The sin of the scribes and the Pharisees was that outwardly, they did everything that the religion required. They outwardly did everything God wanted them to do. But inwardly, there was no repentance. In their lives, there was no fruit of repentance. They felt bad for their sins, but not bad enough to humble themselves, cry out to the Lord their God, and to repent. Just like Manasseh did, and just like we are to do. God is the governor of the world. The ebb and flow of history, the trials and the triumphs in your life are not a mystery. God is the governor of the nations. He is governing you according to his covenant as he promised to do. And because that covenant is a covenant of grace, he seeks your repentance. For repentance, true repentance, is an evangelical grace. It is a gospel hope that today is the day of salvation. Today you can be reconciled to God. Do not receive the grace of God in vain, as Paul the Apostle says in Second uh, uh, Corinthians 5. Do not receive the grace of God in vain, but be reconciled to God. Because he has imputed all of your sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, not imputing your sins to you. Therefore, repent. And as you repent, you will know that the Lord is God. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel promises for your gospel blessings and your gospel chastisements. We pray that you would give us a true repentance, showing itself in a spiritual zeal for your house, abundant in good works, benefiting our neighbors, and a diligent and zealous worship of you in the public means of grace. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen.